together. Revelation 9, beginning in verse 1, says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and they saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months." Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like the horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was that like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past, behold, still more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red and hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, verse 20, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And Father, we humbly pause and just want to pray for the grace of your spirit 
as we continue now in our time of worship, Lord, we do just intercede for all of our precious sisters as they finish up their retreat weekend, Lord, that as they're gathering now, maybe even in the midst of their meeting now, that you would just pour out your spirit mightily upon them as they conclude their time away, that you'd strengthen, refresh them, put the finishing touches on, Lord, everything that you've done there this weekend. And Lord, send them back to us, just renewed and strengthened in the things of the Spirit. Pray for safe journey home. And Lord, we ask that you would just now help us to continue in our worship as we give our attention to the truth of the Word of God. We pray, Lord, that you would make it applicable to our lives by your Spirit's teaching and ministry. Lord, speak now by your Spirit through the things you've spoken here in your written Word. We ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the Bible tells us that God has created us in his image and in his likeness, and part of that includes that we have been created with this thing we refer to as free will. And free will refers to the ability to act at one's own discretion. It means that we all have the capacity and the freedom to make choices. God makes his own decisions. God determines what he will do and what he won't do as he wants and prefers. And in like manner, we have been created, the Bible says, in God's image, in his likeness, as what we would call self-determinant beings. Self-determinant beings. Self-determination is that process whereby a person controls their own life. And scripture teaches us that God allows and even respects our capacity to choose for ourselves. We have been given the capacity, each one of us, in our will to make conscious decisions to determine what we want and what we don't want, to choose what we prefer and to refuse what we don't want. And God does not override our will he does not control us like a puppet on strings or a hand inside of a puppet controlling what takes place. God allows us to choose and determine things. He does not override our will. Love does not force. Love may initiate, love may persuade, it may prompt, but love does not override and force. We often might say that in the strongest sense, and I know it's a strong statement, but it's true, but I've often said before, God does not rape a person's conscience. God allows a person to respond to the dictates of their own conscience, to be able to make their own willing decisions, even if he doesn't agree with those decisions, even if those decisions are outside of his plan and purpose, it grieves his heart, he prompts, he reaches out. But mankind is allowed to make their own decisions. God grants us that free will capacity to decide. And that is both really a great blessing, but it's also kind of a really sobering reality if you think about it. I mean, it's a tremendous blessing to think that God lets us decide and we can choose to love God. We can choose to live for God and to make a decision to serve God. We can make choices to turn away from wrong things in our lives. So if you're on a wrong path this morning, here's the glorious news. You can choose to change. You're not stuck. 
Despite the excuses you may make or the things that may be difficult to change, the fact that you have a free will and the, the ability to do this thing we even call repent, which means to stop going south and to start going north and to turn around and make a change, that's a gift. God's given us this blessing to choose to change and that we can do things differently and we don't have to stay on a certain course. We can choose to stop doing something, turn away from something, yet... That also means that we can choose to reject God. That also means that we can choose not to love God, that we can choose not to serve God, that we can choose what is wrong, and we even can choose not to change. We can make a decision to not change and to continue on a course in our own stubbornness. And really, this to some degree is what we find emphasized pretty heavily in our chapter, this sobering reality of we might say how depraved mankind's heart is, how uh, you know, our stubborn human will can be so hard that not only we would, with almost like an insensitivity, pursue self-destructive paths, but even despite the fact of God we see here in this chapter unleashing, as we just read, these five months of terror upon the earth. Literally, we're going to see it's somewhat of, you might say, a foretaste of hell on earth for a period of time. And despite those things, God's seeking to awaken humanity, the terror, the torment of all that's going on, letting them see what their destiny is going to be if they reject God ultimately, even though those things go to pass and God's seeking their repentance and wanting their salvation to spare them, even in the last hour, they still don't turn away. They still continue to persist, we see at the end of the chapter, in unrepentant, sinful behaviors despite the painful warnings and foretaste of hell and stubborn refusal against God. Now, remember the backdrop of what we're looking at this morning in this chapter. At this point in our study in Revelation, we're in the midst of what we often call the tribulation period, this seven-year period where after God has removed the church, Christians safely delivered them up into heaven as his chosen people who've embraced Christ's salvation, sparing them the wrath of God because we believe Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf. And as a result of that, those who would not receive Christ, who continue to refuse what God has offered, there is still a sentence of judgment that must justly be executed against the rest of mankind because of their sin, because of their guilt, because it was not pardoned through Christ because they refused Jesus. Now, we saw in chapter 8, in the midst now of this seven-year period, we saw in chapter 8 these seven angels come forward, remember, and it says they were given seven trumpets. They have seven trumpets, which they now are going to blast, and with each angel blasting a successive trumpet, another judgment is released upon the earth. In chapter 8, we saw the first four-trumpet blast bringing severe suffering, and now as we come into chapter 9, we see the fifth and the sixth trumpet blasts coming to pass at this time. Look with me back in the beginning of our chapter, verse 1, it tells us that when the fifth angel sounded, blasted his trumpet, I saw, John says, verse 1, a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him, you might want to circle that, to him, was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit 
like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. So notice John sees now this next personage that's described as a star, verse 1 says. Look at it. A star that has fallen from heaven who is then granted authority to open a fiery pit. Now, we know this star is not just a physical celestial body that's falling from the atmosphere like other stars that we've seen fallen. Remember the Wormwood star we saw last time that came down and it poisoned all the drinking water. We know this is not a physical celestial body falling, this star, because the Holy Spirit here gives an attachment of a personal pronoun in describing what this star does. You notice with me there in verse 1, it says of this fallen star from heaven to earth to him, personal pronoun, masculine personal pronoun, to him was given a key to the bottomless pit, and then verse 2 again, and he opened, it says, the bottomless pit. At times in scripture, we see angelic beings metaphorically described as stars. We see that in in Job chapter 38, Revelation chapter 1, the first chapter, the seven stars referred to seven angels. Regarding Satan's fall and his original high-ranking position he had in heaven, and then him uh, experiencing his fall through pride and rebellion, Isaiah 14, we've seen this on Wednesday nights in our study in Isaiah, describes the fall of Satan in this way. It says, you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, which means shining one. You said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That is, I want to be more high-ranking than all the other, other angelic beings. I want to be like God. Remember, that was what Satan's quandary was. He wasn't content with the realm of authority and rulership he had. He wanted more authority. He had a lust for more power, more control, and wanted to be in ways like God, and because of that, it led to his fall. Notice this star-like shining angel described here in verse 1 and 2 is a personage, John says, who, verse 1, had fallen, past tense. He wasn't falling. John says it was a star that had fallen. So there was a past fall from heaven to earth, Isaiah 14 Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 12 are chapters that tell us that Satan has fallen from his prior high-ranking position as an angelic being because of his pride and his rebellion. In Luke 10.18, Jesus himself saw this as God. Jesus says, Luke 10.18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So it seems very likely here in verses 1 and 2 that this is describing actually Satan in his fallen state at this time. If not Satan, certainly a fallen demon for sure. And it would make total sense if this is a description of Satan as this star fallen from heaven to the earth, that he would be given a key to the bottomless pit at this time. The bottomless pit is a reference to the pit of the abyss. And we see this bottomless pit here described Uh, as something that opens, and from down below, this smoke and this heat ascends up from it. This pit of the abyss apparently exists where there is some spiritual shaft somewhere on the globe. We don't know where at, but somewhere on the globe, there is this spiritual shaft that descends down into this fiery, dark, bottomless 
pit. Notice that word. You might want to take note of that. A bottomless pit. What does that describe? It's one thing when you get thrown into a pit and you hit the bottom. This is a bottomless pit, the Bible says, giving the indication to some degree that those suffering in this bottomless pit, their experience in the bottomless pit is like just falling endlessly. It's like getting pushed off of a high rise or pushed off of a high place and falling down into some dark cavernous pit and you never hit the bottom. You just keep ah, just constantly falling and the experience is it never ends. It's like you're perpetually falling continuously into greater darkness and greater darkness awaiting the horror of the utter destruction when you land, but it never ends. It's a bottomless pit. And this seems to be describing in some way a part of the torment. You never get your bearings. You cannot escape. You're trapped forever. And notice that when the pit was open, verse 1 and 2, it tells us there that this pit was characterized like a hot, fiery furnace. It says that when the pit was open, smoke arose, verse 2, out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So its inhabitants dwelling within it are in a constant fiery hot furnace of intense heat, of burning pain, continuously stuck there far down. This smoke comes billowing up into the atmosphere. And verse 2 says that when this fiery smoke came up from this bottomless pit of the abyss, the sun and the air were darkened. Darkness overtakes the earth to some degree because of the smoke of this pit polluting the air. Now, this bottomless pit but the abyss in the Bible seems to be a place represented of a, you might say, holding cell for incarcerated demons as the result of things that they have done being held there incarcerated to keep them from having access to the earth. We're told in uh, the book of Jude describing demons who did not respect normal boundaries of God's design but it seems, if you read Genesis chapter 6, that they took the bodies of human beings and these demons in and taking into the, you know, th themselves indwelling these the human bodies had perverse sexual relations with humanity and in such a way did such a vile thing of crossing a line that Jude tells us that these demons, these angels, it says, who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, God has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So it seems something so perverse and vile happened with these particular group of demons that God put them into this bottomless pit, their reserve, their chain there, because access to the planet is something that would be so vile and grotesque that God had to, in a sense, incarcerate them after the events of what they did. Peter, 2 Peter 2, seems to refer to it this way. He says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Luke, in his account of the demoniac, speaks of how the demons there within the man were begging the Lord not to torment them by sending them down into the abyss. Same place we have described here. Again, demons literally knowing of this pit of the abyss, this bottomless pit, begged Jesus saying, please don't send us there. 
That's how bad the location is. Please don't send us there. Now, as if opening the pit of the abyss and releasing this volcanic, fiery, uh, fiery smoke polluting the earth was not already horrible enough. The Bible goes on to tell us in verse 3 that then out of the smoke of the bottomless pit, locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power, verse 3, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of the God on their foreheads, and they were not given, verse 5, authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man, and in those days, verse 6, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. So John now seeks to describe further what he sees, and I believe very evident, of these grotesque, vile, demon-like creatures released from this pit of the abyss for a five-month period to once again have access on the earth to torture human beings left remaining upon the planet during the time of the tribulation. And notice these demons were like a swarm. John describes them. Again, he's, he's trying to use language to describe what he's seeing in this vision. These locust-like demons flying upwards, covering the earth like a swarm of locusts. Now, interesting, why five months? Well, locusts have a five-month lifespan. And perhaps this is why John, again, not only seeing them physically, why he's trying to describe it this way, and locusts, when they would come, swarms of locusts, they would bring devastation upon the planet for the time period in which they were operating. Locust creatures would devour and devastate and ruin everything in their path. They brought great loss. They wreaked havoc when they came and brought utter devastation. And these locust-like creatures, notice here, are given power, it says, like a poisonous scorpion on top of that to inflict harm. Verse 4 tells us they were commanded, these demonic spirits, not to harm the grass of the earth. So again, if these were regular locusts, they'd eat up all. That's what regular locusts do. But these aren't regular locusts. These are locust-like weird demonic creatures. So they don't touch the grass or any of the green herbs. To them, he says, however, nor any tree, only those men who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads is who and what they were allowed to harm. So their harm was done directly to human beings to punish them severely with suffering. And notice specifically to punish those people on the earth, verse 4 says, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, we saw just a few chapters back in chapter 7, remember, 144,000 Jewish people, it says, were sealed by the Holy Spirit. They became converted by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and then unleashed on the planet like 144,000 Jewish Paul the Apostles preaching the gospel, it seems, during the time of the tribulation, they're preserved, and it says that a seal was put upon them by God. 
That is speaking of the seal of the Holy Spirit. So they're converted, they're preserved, they're protected. No harm can come to them until they complete their ministry during the time of the tribulation. Perhaps even this is a reference to any other believers who are sealed by the Spirit. There are those who will get saved during the tribulation. We know that. And those who are either of that 144,000 Jewish evangelists who were sealed and born again of the Spirit, preaching Christ at this time, or others who were saved, they were preserved, but all the rest of mankind that was still on the planet, we're told, were subject to this horrible torture and the harm of these demonic creatures. Now notice, please, if you would, as verse 4 describes this, it indicates to us very clearly that God, in his judgment and in his punishment, always makes a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. And we see this all throughout the word of God. God sent forth these demons. He allowed them to execute punishment and suffering upon the unrighteous and the unconverted who've rejected Christ and are living in rebellion. But any who were on the planet who were in right relationship with God during that time, they were preserved and distinctly set apart and did not suffer as the punishment and the judgment was coming to pass because God always makes a distinction when he judges between the righteous and the unrighteous. Genesis 18, when Abraham was pleading with God, he said of God, far be it from you to slay the righteous as the wicked shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And we see this theme throughout the word of God where when God judges, he always separates and distinctively preserves and protects the righteous and allows the unrighteous to be those punished. Now, in the midst of all this chaos, we also can tell God is completely in control. I mean, this is a crazy, chaotic description of what's going on on this planet, but notice God is in total control even when it looks like there's chaos. God's still in complete control. Even when chaotic and rebellious things are happening, God's always remaining in control. And one of the ways we see God in control one of the other restrictions that God puts in place when this punishment is meted out, the torment from these demonic spirits, is it says of these scorpion, locust-like demons, verse 5, look at it, they were not given authority to kill people, but to torment them for five months. And he says their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. So somehow... The painful torment inflicted by these demonic creatures, John says, it was like the sting of a scorpion. Now, I have never been stung by a scorpion, nor do I ever plan to. My biggest feat is when once in a while I'm on one end of the house and I hear from the other end of the house a screeching scream from my wife, and I know I have a bug to kill. Usually it's, you know, a weak spider or something that I can handle. But they say the sting of a scorpion causes excruciating pain, severe burning, that it can cause seizures, convulsions, nausea, other things, but it is an incredibly painful experience because it affects the neurological system. And it says that the sting of these demonic, locust, scorpion-like creatures was like the sting of a scorpion and when these demons did this to mankind, notice it says, however, verse 5, but they were not permitted to kill mankind, but only torment them for five months. So for five months, they are allowed to bring unceasing torment 
ongoing agony, painful torture, severe misery and suffering upon humanity, perpetual torment for five months without any relief. No escape from it. In fact, considering the horrible torment and pain caused by these demons, verse 6, look what it says, that in those days, so bad is the agony, men will seek death and they won't be able to find it. They will desire to die, verse 6 says, and it will flee from them. So, so severe is the agony and the pain that mankind who's undergoing it, they desire to die because they want relief. They're trying to get escape by ending their lives, actually trying to kill themselves, making suicidal attempts, and it won't work. Death takes a holiday. For five months, God will not allow the death process to happen. God will remove the ability of mankind to die, it says, for five months so that the torment is perpetual and unending and there's no escape from it. Imagine people literally for five months undergoing this torment and the agony of it all trying to kill themselves. It says they will desire and seek to die and death will elude them. So imagine mankind, the suicidal attempts, people shooting themselves. People jumping off of high locations, overdosing on drugs, trying to hang themselves, carbon monoxide poisoning, and all the efforts of man trying to kill themselves, and the spirit of man won't leave the body. All they do is just further torture themselves with greater injuries, and they still are not able to die. The agony just intensifies, and the death process isn't even a way of escaping, they're being trapped in this situation. Now, what's happening? I can tell you what's happening. God is giving mankind for five months a foretaste of hell. Because for five months, there is agony and torment and torture and pain in a way like never before experienced in human history. And for five months, they can't escape it. There is no escape hatch. They can't die and bring an end to it. They can't escape it. They can't run from it. They are stuck in perpetual agony. They are stuck in unceasing torment, and there's no relief, and there's no escape. And see, that is what the lake of fire is going to be like to a much, much greater degree, unceasing torment and no escape and no ability to be able to bring it to an end or get relief from it. Verse 7 goes on to tell us of these creatures, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like, now notice all the metaphorical language here, something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into a battle. And they had tails like scorpions, as we've already seen. And there were stings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men, John reinforces, for five months. So John, again, he's trying to describe these creatures that he's seeing, and he says they were like flying locusts, like locusts on warrior horses, he describes them, rushing forward. The idea is to attack mankind ferociously. 
He said they had gold-like crowns on their heads. There he describes in verse 7, displaying they had supernatural authority and power to do things with supernatural rulership and authority. These locust scorpion-like demons, he said they had faces like a human being with long hair. So imagine a locust scorpion with a human face and long hair. I mean, you would talk about a sci-fi movie. What these things look like, you wonder why I had a bad dream last night. Something like impenetrable armor upon them, like iron, in the words, so you can't kill them. You can't shoot them. You can't stick a spear in them. I mean, many of us, you know, we think of some grotesque sci-fi alien invasion movie that you saw. <laughs> That's an understatement. At least in some of those movies, they have weapons. Somehow they figure out how to kill the alien, you know. They're running from them, but they can kill a few of them. You can't kill these. They have iron-like breastplates in a way where there's nothing you can do to stop them. And they had a sting that was hurting people severely. Now, imagine the evasion of these horrible, terrifying creatures terrorizing humanity. And, and if I could kind of somewhat illustrate, imagine if you would, if we one day opened all the prisoners, all the prisons in the world, and we let loose the worst of humanity's criminals, and we told them to go terrorize the planet for five months. That would be a faint, faint understatement of what's happening here. This is a hundred times worse because this is opening the worst pit and incarcerated cell in an abyss of vile, grotesque demons with supernatural power that cannot be killed to go terrorize the planet for five months straight. I mean, it's unimaginable what is going to transpire. Verse 11, going on to describe this, John says, and they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Now, again, here's further indication that these are not natural locusts, because again, using the word of God, Proverbs 30, verse 27 says that locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. These locusts, like creatures, have a king, because they're not real locusts. They're locusts like scorpion, crazy, freaky demons, and they've got a king. And their king's name that's leading them as an army apparently has this name, we're told here, Abaddon or Apollyon, whether it's in the Hebrew or the Greek, both of those terms translated mean destruction or destroyer. So that's who their king is. Their leader is destruction and destroyer. John says, verse 12, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these. In other words, that was just the start of it. One woe is past, he says. Verse 13, he then goes on to tell us the sixth angel now sounds. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, verse 14, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released now to kill a third of mankind. So with the fifth trumpet, God in total control, 
Mankind is tormented for five months, and death is unattainable. Now, God's still in complete control. The sixth trumpet, now there is widespread death, and it's, you might say, unavoidable. Because now, God allows another third of mankind on the planet to be killed by these demonic creatures coming forth, this remaining population. And we find this time, the way it happens is these four angels, it says there, who were prepared by God and who were being kept somewhere bound, it says, at the great river Euphrates near the Babylon-type area geographically, and they're kept there bound, and they've been kept there, notice, for the exact year and month and hour and day to be released at this very moment and hour historically for a specific purpose. God releases these four powerful angels who will be, it seems, somewhat almost like generals who will then unleash even further amounts of demons to go forth to bring forth this widespread death among mankind where one-third of the population now remaining on the planet is destroyed. Kind of like how the death angel went through in Egypt. These angels will be leading a horde of demons that will go forth on a global level and will further reduce the remaining population another third through death. Now again, notice everything in the midst of all this completely under God's control. And why I say that is notice we see again a set time was determined for these four angels who it says were prepared but then bound at the great river Euphrates and that they were not released until the exact year and month and day and even hour that God lets them go forth and fulfill their specific purpose until the set time arrives. They could not go forth a year, a month, a day, or even an hour before God said that they could because God was restricting them and God's in complete control and God had an exact time and there was prior restraint until God's specific set time came to pass in his intended plan. Now, let me try and draw something of an application out of that dark experience. And to me, I would bring to our attention this, that at times, God's plans, like these angels here, the four that are being kept for a set month and day and hour, and not until that set time would God let things unfold. At times, God has plans that may unfold in a similar way in our lives as well. God has ways of working at times where God may decide something is going to be a part of his plan for your life. And God has a plan for your life. God has something he's going to do in your life or a set purpose for your life or a way to maybe do something to serve in your life. And God prepares you for that. But then sometimes God puts you in a holding pattern. And though God has called you to do it and God has a plan for this to come to pass in your life and God has some purpose or thing he wants to do in your life and he prepares you, he may put you in a holding pattern because it's not yet the right time. And it may be that it's just right now, not the right year, maybe it's not the right month, maybe it's not the right day, and it's not the right hour yet. And until that right year and right month and right day and right hour comes to pass, God may keep things restrained. 
But when that right year and right month and right day and right hour comes to pass, that God's predetermined that as his set time finally arrives, God can move the restraint and God can bring things to pass super quick. It often seems like it takes a long time for God to do something, but when God gets moving, boy, it moves fast. Then it's almost we're doing the opposite. Lord, this is happening so fast. How is this happening so fast? I've been waiting forever for a spouse. God, I've been waiting forever. And then all of a sudden, you meet the right one. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, this seems like it's moving pretty fast. I'm getting a little terrified. I might really be getting married soon. Oh, my goodness, what is God doing? He's doing what you've been waiting for. And God has ways of working like this, where he has a set time period. You know, Genesis chapter 18, God was speaking to Abraham about his plan, where, remember, he and Sarah had no children, and they were past the childbearing age. And then God, as he's speaking to Abraham, says this. Looks like it's impossible. It's been too long. They don't even have the capacity to, to bring it to pass now. And God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is obvious, no, not for the Lord. And then God says, here's the problem. It's not the appointed time yet. It's not that I can't do it. God just says it's not the appointed time. But he says, there's nothing too hard for me to do, and I'll do it at the appointed time that I know is best. We're told as well in Genesis 21, the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, the Bible says, at the set time. At the set time. Listen, let me say to encourage you this morning, God has set times, not only a year and a month and a day and an hour on the calendar for your life too, and you can't override that. The best thing to do is to wait in confident faith, trust God and his divine wisdom and timetable, and his intended purposes will come to pass in his perfect timing. And nothing is better than when it happens at God's appointed time. Well, John now goes on to try and explain a little bit, I think, of how this method comes to pass of this horrible death toll of a third of mankind it says, verse 16, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. So John seems to describe now how a third of mankind was killed, not just by these four angels. It seems the four angels were perhaps like four generals on a battlefield, and this scene appears to be describing an even more vast army of vile demons, as we read them described in the verses ahead, an army of 200 million coming forth to kill a third of mankind. Now imagine just a human army of 200 million soldiers. This is a demonic army of vile, grotesque creatures coming forth, as I said. <laughs> this is worse than any alien invasion that ever was depicted in any movie. Coming forth on the planet. Verse 17 says, Thus I saw the horses in the vision... And those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone. 
and by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. So it was by these creatures that a third of mankind, a plague came and killed them. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for there is power, he says, verse 19, in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, with them they do harm. So notice these creatures, again, John tries to describe them. They have covered breastplates like lion-like heads. He describes these demons out of their mouths. It says comes fire and smoke and brimstone. The idea is like a fire-breathing dragon. And if that weren't enough, he says their power to harm was not only in their head with a fiery dragon, you know, spewing of burning fire to their victims, but also, he says, they also had power in their tails. And he says their tails were like scorpion tails. And he says, and on their tails were heads like serpents. So you've got tails with heads on the tails that look like serpents. You're going to have a bad dream tonight, too. Actually, you should have a really good dream and realize, thank Jesus that I'm not going to be around for this. And he says they were inflicting these poisonous bites on mankind, which caused a third of mankind to be killed. Again, God's showing miraculously how he can keep people alive and he can let people die whenever he wants to. God's in complete control sovereignly of the fragility of the lives of human beings. Daniel 5, Daniel was rebuking the powerful ruler Belshazzar for his own resistance against God. And Daniel said to him for his arrogancy and rebellion against God, he said, you have not humbled your heart, but you have lifted yourself up against the God who holds your breath in his hand and controls your destiny. I mean, just imagine what this is going to be like, this 200 million army, these vile demons coming forth, attacking mankind, even after the five-month experience with the other grotesque demons that came forth, one would expect, would we not? We would expect, having read that description and just reading it, not literally experiencing it, just reading it, one would expect humanity to be humbly, what, begging for God's help. God, please help us, deliver us, free us. But look what verse 20 says. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or of their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now, that is meant to be a shocking contrast of what one would expect. The Holy Spirit emphasizes for repetition two times. He says it in verse 20, and so we don't miss it. The Spirit of God repeats it again in verse 21, that the rest of mankind did not repent. The word repent doesn't mean have remorse or sorrow for error and mistakes. Repentance speaks of changing one's mind in a conscious choice that leads to changing one's behavior and direction. Repentance is, I've been going the wrong way. And it's not, and I kind of, I really feel bad about that. 
And I genuinely feel bad. I've gone the wrong way because I've hurt people going the wrong way or I've hurt myself or now I I got all these consequences and a mess because I've gone the wrong way. That's not repentance. That's remorse. Repentance is I've got to stop going the wrong way. So therefore, I am making a 180. I'm choosing to change and turning around and going away the opposite direction. It's repenting from what's wrong and turning towards what's right and going the opposite way. And it says here that mankind would not repent of practicing their sins and their rebellion against God despite all the pain and the torment and the hardship that they've gone through. Still, John says, they would not turn from their evil indulgences. They would not stop their practices of sins. They continue to persist in rebellion against God, saying no to him in an astonishing act. Really, folks, is it not showing how hard a human heart can be? The capacity of the hardness of a human heart to refuse God, to not surrender and it's also a fitting depiction there in verse 20 and 21 of what last day's society is going to be like. And in some ways, I read that, and I think that's a pretty clear picture of our current age as well. A pretty clear picture. In verse 20, we find the sins of pride and arrogance and the worship of self and idolatry. He describes men not repenting of the works of their own hands. What are the works of one's own hands? It's what you've built. It's what you've created. It's what you've established. And again, humanity, you know, we have our own ideas that we've created, our positions and our platforms and our human systems and all that we've built as human beings on this planet in rebellion to God generally and the arrogancy of self-worship to say to God, we don't need your way, we, we do it our way. And what we've created with our own hands, this is what we want. We don't want your system. We don't want your ideas. We will build and create and make for us what we want. It depicts the pride of mankind, resisting God, thinking they're smarter than God. He describes there the worship in verse 20 of demons, people being involved in dark, deviant, demonic things, engaging in such in their behaviors. He describes different forms of idolatry of gold and silver and brass. And of course, just idolatry is anything that we give allegiance and dedication to other than God. And the idols of gold and silver and brass speak of things like wealth and materialism and possessions. Again, loving those things, possessions and wealth and materialism more than loving and serving God. In verse 24, he describes other sins that humanity would not stop practicing. They didn't want to let go of. He mentions murders. And a murder, of course, is destroying innocent life in any way. Killing and arrogance and anger and selfishness and having no regard for human life. Murder is taking the life of an innocent person with no reverence for life, oftentimes in brutal and cruel acts like a savage beast. For my purposes, for my reasons, I'm going to eliminate human life to satisfy some personal selfish desire that I have. And he said, mankind refused to stop doing such. He mentions sorceries there in verse 21. And again, that term sorcery in the original language isn't just dark supernatural activity, wizards and witchcraft. The word in the Greek, I've said to you before, that word sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia where we get our English word pharmacy, which speaks of 
drug usage. And if we think very candidly, many a times the gateway to things that are altered states of consciousness and, and weird experiences, a gateway to realms that our minds and lives should never enter into, that are dark and deviant, oftentimes the gateway to that is drug usage. It's pharmakia, where hallucinations and bizarre things are seen in the minds of people in an altered state of consciousness when they're engaging in the sin of pharmakia, in abusing drugs and using it in a way where their minds are altered in horrible ways. He mentions sexual immorality, which is any form of perversity, indulging abnormal sexual practices, abnormal sexual behavior outside of God's design of one male and one female in a monogamous lifelong relationship, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's adultery, whether it's having sexual relations with someone who you're not yet married to, whatever it may be the various forms of perversion of mankind. And then he mentions thefts that is, again, just irresponsible behavior of not productively, responsibly providing for yourself, but instead taking from others what actually is rightfully theirs. And boy, we do that in many forms as well. Not responsibly generating and providing as a contributor what we should, but instead stealing and taking from others what they productively, responsibly created as an independent person. And he says, these are the things that mankind, not just in their depravity, will be doing, but in the hardness of their heart, they will refuse to let go of. That they will say, you know what? We love our sins more. We want these things more. And look, this is a clear depiction of exactly, folks, sadly, what we should anticipate as the moral clock continues to tick and we watch the world unwinding around us the depravity of what is going on in our world. I look at that list, I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I realize, man, we are right on the edge. I mean, the brutality of mankind, no regard for human life anymore, the barbaric, cruel things that human beings will do to one another, the perversion of sexual immorality that we're now engaging in in this generation? I mean, we've always been sexually perverse as human beings, but now they're messing with our kids, with children. And you have to wonder when Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot. That's what it's going to be like in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. I believe we need to look up that our redemption is nigh. And the only thing holding back further chaos and filth and perversity is you and I continuing to be salt and light and trying to reach souls for Christ because this is their destiny. And we don't want to see that be people's destiny. And we need to share Jesus as God gives us opportunity. Let's stand. Let's pray together.